0: Hello, and welcome to the Good Life Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're listening, we hope that you'll be encouraged, challenged, and that you might hear the invitation to be a part of the transformative work of God. At the moment, we're in a series called Liberating Revelation, and it's been quite awesome. But if you've got some bigger questions about it, I recommend you check out our most recent Pondering episode, where Hannah chatted to Mike about some big questions they had while shaping the series. Today, we're hearing from Mike, and he's asking, what is the point of judgment? I hope you enjoy.
1: How many people are here for the first time this morning? Okay. I'm so sorry. (laughs) So, (laughs) if this was the day, if you hadn't been here for the last kind of four or five weeks, and you're like, oh, I'm going to invite my friend today, and you brought them along... First of all, you can be relieved. We're not talking... Oh, actually, we just did talk about money, actually. But we're not, we're not talking about money. But then you may also be a little nervous because we are in Banksmack Smack in the middle of a series on the book of Revelation, which is the last book in the Bible. Now, the book of Revelation is one of the most controversial, misunderstood uh, books in Scripture. It's a book that's created all kinds of controversy. A lot of people are nervous about the book of Revelation. They don't want to read it. Because when you're reading about a beast with seven heads and a lamb with seven eyes and all these characters and all this action and drama and judgment, it's just like, what on earth has that got to do with the fact that today I've got to go to work and on the way to work, I've got to work out how to get my kids ready to drop them to school to get my work done in time so that when we get the kids and we feed them and we finally get them to bed, We can actually take a deep breath and go, ah, let's do that again. And then someone says, oh, have you been reading Revelation? And you're like, what? How's that going to help me? Show me how the book of Revelation helps me. Does anyone understand that tension? Well, we have been a little bit unpacking, not so much how it currently helps with our parenting, but it is actually in there indirectly. And we'll, we'll make reference to that a little bit more. But today, I want to just start off and just give you a quick review of where we are up to so far in the series. And let me just say, if you're not understanding everything, it's totally cool. If some of it's going over your head or you haven't got a reference point for some of the things that we're talking about, don't worry about it. Try to hold on for the key ideas that we're actually talking about in the series. Revelation is the only book of the Bible that promises a blessing when you read it which is pretty cool it says blessed is the one who obeys the words of this prophecy another way of saying this is how should we actually live now how do we actually live out the words that are spoken and that we may walk and live in its blessing it's a challenge for us to live holy and godly lives as we look forward to the day of God and his return. And it's about us keeping his promise as we look forward to the new heaven and the new earth that God is going to bring about. I want to read to you a passage of scripture found actually in 2 Peter chapter 3 verses 8 to 15. The apostle Peter, he said these words, you ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God. In other words, to the coming again where God finally restores all things and eagerly hasten towards its coming. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth. It's another way of saying a redeemed, a renewed, a restored earth. The home of righteousness. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. That's Peter's way of saying, God is going to bring about His purposes. And your role, while we wait for that to be fully complete, is to live your lives faithfully following the Lamb of God, faithfully following Christ as best you can. Being set apart from the systems, the mindsets, the philosophies of this world, and embracing fully the way of Christ. And that is the challenge for us. We began this series by talking about how the book of Revelation is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. What it is, is, is a Apocryphal writing that uses symbols from Hebrew scriptures that mean things to its original readers to guide them and to encourage them and to challenge them and how to think about the situation that they find themselves in. The book of Revelation, I'm going to give you just a real quick snapshot overview of the entire book, kind of by general chapter summary. The book of Revelation begins in chapter 1. We can go to that slide. Thank you, Michelle. Um, It's a couple on probably from what you're looking at. Uh, Where John has a vision. He's on the island of Patmos. And he's there because he's basically been put aside for his role and being a threat to the Roman Empire. And he's there. And while he's on the island of Patmos, he has this vision. And it's a vision that comes from Christ. And Christ speaks to him and he writes everything that he sees down. And it's written down in a style that was common for its day, but very strange and odd for us in our day. And this is the first chapter. And then in chapters two and three of the book of Revelation, we actually have the account of what Jesus says to each of the seven churches. There were seven literal churches that were around the western part of Turkey, as we would know it today. And each of them get to hear a specific message that Jesus wants to say to them about what it means for them to remain faithful to who God has called them to be as His followers. And some of these churches get a message of challenge because they're compromising. As we heard so brilliantly expressed last week in Hannah's message, and I encourage you, if you've missed any of the messages, to go back and have a listen. But as she unpacked the story of the churches, we... We hear about some churches that were not being faithful to who Christ had called them to be by being an alternative society or community in the world under the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ, but were actually compromising by allowing the systems of their culture to deeply impact the way that they operated. And these churches were challenged. There were some other churches that were affirmed and encouraged for their faithfulness, And some of these Christians in these churches were suffering persecution for their loyalty to Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God that they declared is their Lord, their Saviour and their King. And in their faithfulness to live out that they were being threatened by the empire of Rome. And they were suffering. And When John wrote this letter, it was only a generation earlier that there had been an enormous persecution in which thousands of followers of Christ were slaughtered for their faith, faithfully following the Lamb of God. And we read about this challenge. But chapters 2 and 3 isn't just the only message to these seven churches. As a matter of fact, this was a circular letter the entire letter of Revelation would go to every one of these churches. And they would each hear what God was saying through Jesus to each of the churches. And then the rest of the letter would also be read and they would hear and they would listen and they would reflect on this. Because this entire letter was written to encourage and to challenge and inspire these followers of Christ to be faithful We then move on to chapters 4 and chapters 5, which is kind of like the centering image of the book of Revelation that Jesus wants us to get. And John's making sure that he faithfully writes down what he sees and in this style of symbol, so that we can have images and metaphors that helps us make sense of what God is like. And so we go in chapter 4 to a vision of the throne room, and it's an extraordinary scene of worship, where all of the creatures and all of the people and all of the angels, they bow down and they worship the one who is on the throne. And then we move to chapter five. And earlier on in the series, this was the central text that we were focusing on because it really sets up the way that we're to interpret and understand the whole book of Revelation. And it begins with this, language of a scroll or picture of a scroll that has seven seals that needs to be opened that's going to tell the people of God how God is going to bring about His purposes. But in chapter 5, no one seems worthy to open this scroll and to declare how things are going to be. And so John, who's caught up in this vision, he's looking around and then someone says to him, we found someone and it's the Lion of Judah which is a symbol that means to the people of Israel that Jesus has come through the line of Judah. He's the Messiah that they have been waiting for. It's packed with meaning. And then the most fascinating thing happens. When John goes to look to where this lion is, in fact, he doesn't see a lion because that's the symbol of the tribe that Jesus comes from. In fact, he sees... A little slaughtered lamb. Which is also, by the way, like prophetic comedy. Because this little lamb that happens to have seven eyes is a symbol of victory in which all the people begin to worship and bow down and worship this lamb. And the only time we hear the word lion is in that context And for the rest of the book, we hear 28 times that the image that God wants us to have of what Christ is like and the symbol that we are to hold on to is as the slaughtered lamb of God who is victorious. And how do the people respond to this little lamb? It's pretty easy to worship and follow a powerful lion. Everyone gets that. But the script has been flipped as Jesus does in His life, in His teaching, as the hope of Israel was for a military victor, Messiah, who would come and rescue them and deliver them from their oppression, Jesus comes and He's nothing like what they expect, which is the same theme now playing again through the book of Revelation. What people expect and what they imagine is not quite that. The power of God, the victory of Jesus Is not seen in a power that is of a human style, but in sacrificial love. The lamb who is slain, who is slaughtered, willingly lays down its life for those, even those who slaughter him. And this chapter tells us that all of the people worship day and night, night and day. And they declare what we sang this morning Worthy is the Lamb. Holy, holy, holy. This is the centering image of the book of Revelation. And we were saying earlier on in the series that if you really want to get a great picture of who God is and what He's like and how we're to respond, the invitation of this book is centered around this entire image here. We are called as Jesus' disciples, as His followers. To follow the Lamb in the way of the Lamb. Cross-shaped, sacrificial love. And we're to follow the Lamb into new creation. We're to follow the Lamb into the new city, which is an image for how God is going to restore and redeem and make all things new. And this book is actually a book of hope. This is a book of victory for those who are faithfully saying, "When and how, and how are we going to navigate this, and what is our future like?" But then it takes a radical twist and turn as it unpacks what this is going to look at. And in chapters six to chapters twenty, we actually have what is commonly understood as the judgments—how God is going to, to go about dealing with evil and with empire—and the language is used of Babylon. Babylon is a symbol for Rome. But the power of symbol is that, though this is exactly how the first readers and listeners of this book would have heard it, and they understood everything that John was saying relating to their context, their culture, and what has previously happened, the power of symbol is that we actually see this superseding just Rome but being a symbol for all kinds of empire throughout history. And so it becomes super relevant for us also as followers of the Lamb. And then the last two chapters of the book of Revelation, chapters 21 and chapters 22, is the vision that we hold on to with hope. It's the picture of restoration, of new creation, of the, the new city of God, and that beautiful picture of heaven and earth coming together like a marriage, becoming one where we see that God is finally restoring all things. He's finally dealing with evil once and for all. And evil is cast into the lake of fire where it's destroyed so that all that remains is God's original intention for humanity. And we see this picture where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more suffering. This is the hope of humanity that God has not forgotten this world, He has not forgotten the cosmos, but He will renew and He will redeem and He will make all things new. And we get to be part of that. And that being part of that began the day that Jesus rose from the dead on Resurrection Sunday. This was the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven on earth. This was the beginning of new creation breaking into the world in which we live. Now, earlier on in the series, we unpacked some challenging ideas that are kind of unpopular to some of the more popular views of the book of Revelation that are more common these days, or at least in the last 150 years. There's not been the historical understanding of the book of Revelation or the end times. And we've been saying that even if you disagree or you have different ideas or you're reading books or listening to preachers or teachers that hold to different ideas than what we're talking about in this series— that's okay. Let's just keep talking and learning and discussing this. But also we have to do our best to try and express this as we best understand. And we tackled issues such as a very common idea of the rapture. The rapture being this idea that at some point before the judgments and before the tribulation kicks in, as God deals with the evil of the world, there will be a moment where Christ comes on the clouds and Everyone who's already a follower of Jesus will take off up to the clouds, meet Jesus, and kind of go off into the heavenly realm until some other point, which creates confusion around is that Jesus' second coming or is there going to be another second coming again after that coming? And we've been unpacking the fact that this whole idea has actually created for many people a major distraction for the work of the gospel and our faithfulness as followers of Jesus through tribulation in trial, and in God's purposes in the world. Because it's taken a twist on what the Gospel message is, just based off a misinterpretation of one verse in the book of Thessalonians. Now, if you want to know more about that, I encourage you to go back and listen to both week one and week two of our series, where we unpack that and why. But the idea fundamentally is this. When the metaphor or the pictures used in Thessalonians of Jesus' followers meeting Christ in the clouds It's meant simply as a symbol of royal welcome, in welcoming Christ back to the world to complete and fulfill the coming of His kingdom. But it's ended up becoming a major point that actually isn't the point. You don't see it in the book of Revelation. You don't see it in other parts of Scripture. You actually see something different. You see a call for God's people to remain faithful, to not tell people out of fear, hey, you should accept Jesus so that when trial and tribulation comes you can escape that coming judgment and tribulation. But to actually say we're called to change our minds, to change our lives, to bow and surrender not to the lord of the empire, to the to the kings and the systems of this world, but to actually surrender to the god of all creation revealed in Christ Jesus who is the Lamb of God, and to actually say, I'm not going to live as a servant of the empire of Babylon. I'm going to live as a servant and a follower of Jesus Christ, the Lord and King of all creation, who has shown us another way to live. And that way is of love, of peace, of all the things that He taught in Matthew chapter 5 to 7 and in the Gospels around the Sermon on the Mount, the peaceable kingdom. And his prayer that he invited us to pray, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. This was not an invitation because if you, were, you subscribe to another theology, which is more of an escapism theology that says, we're just holding on for the day when we like take off out of here. You actually miss the fact that the grand story of Scripture is the coming together of heaven and earth to be one, where God will finally deal with evil and all things will be as they are meant to be. The shalom, the goodness, the peace, the wholeness of God, fully present. And our invitation is to live that out in the here and the now. So the major story plot of the book of Revelations, we said in week one, is this question, And this is a question that the churches that are hearing this letter, they have to grapple with this. They have to wrestle with this question. And it is, will Jesus' followers faithfully endure the threat of Babylon and inherit the renewed world that God is creating and has already begun? Will they play their part? in participating through their lives and their witness and their commitment to justice and mercy and peacemaking, will they be faithful to God's purposes? And we already know from those first letters in chapters 2 and 3 that some of those churches are not remaining faithful to this vision. And it's a warning to them. And it's a challenge to them. The key to reading the book of Revelation if you say, all right, what, what, what's the way that I need to read this? It's to understand this. This book is about the Lamb's final complete defeat of the dragon, which is the key character, which is the symbol of Satan or the devil, and its many Babylons, and the establishment of new Jerusalem, or another way of saying new creation. Remember, these are symbols. The plot of the book, which is, Hades, the God of the dead, is the place where God will send evil, in other words, the way of the dragon, so the kingdom of God can be fully and finally established. This book, as Scott McKnight says, is not about finding joy, as some segments of Christian circles do around the world, in unbelievers getting their due punishment for rejecting Jesus but it's about the defeat of the dragon and the systemic evils in Babylon. The celebration is not personal vengeance, but cosmic justice. Scott McNair says it's a colossal cosmic relief for the dragon to be defeated so the splendour can all go to the lamb and the one on the throne. Now, I want to circle back to an idea that's really important for us to understand in making sense of how we apply this to our lives. There's a theological idea we've talked about a few times here around the kingdom of God being both now and present, but also not yet fully here. For Jesus and the apostles, the kingdom of God was both now and also still coming. The predicted future of the kingdom was not some far-off future event or some utopia, but it was already unleashed. It was already here and now, but yet not completely here. And what this means for the seven churches of the book of Revelation is they already are called to embody in the area where they live and they have their churches, the launch of the kingdom of God where they are. These churches that are here in this letter have got probably like one foot in Babylon and the other foot already in New Jerusalem. In other words, they're breaking into, they're participating in the new world that God is creating whilst also having to live in the reality of Babylon around about them. You and I have to experience this every day. This same thing. We live in a world of Babylon's. We live in a world of empire of evil, of corruption, of injustice. And we have to work out how to navigate living every day here. But the way we're called to live is as citizens of heaven. Faithfully following Jesus as we live within the empire that we find ourselves living in. These churches Are here to represent the Lamb. The seven churches of John's time were called to embody the future realities of the New Jerusalem as faithful witnesses in the presence of Babylon, embodied by the Empire of Rome in their time. Now, I want to talk about this section of Scripture, Revelation chapter 6 verses, uh, sorry, chapter 6 to, to chapters 20. And we're going to read these 14 chapters right now. (laughs) Just joking. But here's the challenge. There's so much packed into it, so I'm going to give kind of summary in a way that I hope is sort of helpful for it. What we have, and we talked a little bit about this in week two, is we have from chapter six, the beginning of what we have as three times sevens. There are three different lots of seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And for many people, as we explain in week two, people see this as a chronological sequence of events. But the nature of the writings and too many of the verses and also the backstory that we read about in Daniel and uh, Zechariah and the the, the authors of the Old Testament prophets that, that John heavily relies on makes us understand that these three lots of seven are not some chronological there's going to be seven here then seven then another seven but they're actually almost like overlapped as three different angles of the same unfolding thing but giving us different insights on the nature of both God's judgment but also the tribulation and the trial of the saints as they seek to follow Jesus and the and the language and the picture here is intense it's dramatic it's graphic It's meant to jolt and challenge and unsettle the people that are listening to this to consider their situation and their lives and their response. But amongst these three sevens, we actually get these little moments of interludes. There's actually 10 interludes in this section of Scripture. And the idea of these interludes is almost as a relief, as a a pause as they hear this because they get like... It's like the, the curtain of the throne room of God is again open to them where they can get some relief from the intensity of what they're hearing in these uh, three times seven. And so amongst these ten, you'll, as you read through these sections, you'll realize, oh, okay, here's another interlude. And this is a chance for the people of God, because you've got to remember this is who it's written to, the people of God. It's not written to Babylon or to Rome it's written to the followers of Jesus for them to have a sense of hope and understanding to say, we're going through trial. We're going through tribulation. We're experiencing all this persecution and we can see all these things, these symbols that are taking place in our time and have already taken place before us. And We need hope. And this is what these interludes begin to do. They lift the listeners in the seven churches out of the horrors of the dragon and the wild things or the beasts and out of Babylon into the heavenly throne room to experience God and His presence and to see the real story that's ultimately unfolding, the story of everything, you might say. The New Jerusalem, the interludes, they remind us as listeners That we're not yet fully there. We have not yet fully seen all of God's kingdom come, and we have not fully yet seen God deal ultimately with all of evil for all time. And the challenge being that it can feel like in everyday life sometimes we experience, or our experience can be, that the dragon is winning. That's how I felt the last three weeks when I look at what's unfolding in the Middle East. When I choose, and I'm not suggesting anyone else should do this, but to watch graphic videos of what's happening in the destruction of humanity, I cry out and I grieve, and I, the other night, Therese and I We just grieved together and we lamented together and we're just like, this is... um, we, We watched mothers begging, begging the Creator to change their situation, to bring their dead children back. We watched fathers trying to find their family members buried beneath concrete. I think of people in the Ukraine... And also in Russia, who live under oppressive regimes. I think of persecuted Christians throughout Asia and Africa and throughout the world who suffer for their commitment to follow Jesus faithfully. And it can feel like it's just a very long Friday on the cross, what we call Good Friday. But these passages, these interludes are meant to remind us that it feels like Good Friday, but Easter Sunday morning is coming. And the new Jerusalem will one day replace Babylon. And we will hold on in hope and we will worship the land on our way. These passages, these, these chapters from chapter 6 to 20 are really answers to the prayers of the faithful Lamb followers. In Revelation six verses nine to eleven, it says, "When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony that they had maintained." In other words, these are martyrs. They called out in a loud voice. And this morning, ask yourself: Have you ever prayed this prayer before? I'm sure you have. It's a how long prayer. How long when you suffer and when you think, when will this pain go? We sang about it this morning, I speak Jesus. We speak Jesus over our realities and it's not just some magic, just saying the word magically Jesus over someone as much as it's the power of what the name of Jesus as the restoring, healing presence of God means to each person that we speak Jesus into these situations but these followers of Jesus are crying out, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? Hear the cry, the ache for them for justice? Then each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed, just as they had been. Again, dramatic and heavy language. It goes on and Revelation eight three to five. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer, and the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. And then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and held it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder and rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Remember what we're talking about here is symbols of God responding to the heart cry of His people to bring about justice and the healing of the nations. For these people to see that they are not forgotten as they remain faithful to the Lamb of God. So I want to finish in this last section today by asking this question. When we look at the judgments of God and when we look at the Scripture in these chapters, chapters 6 to 20, are we talking about what kind of judgment are we talking about? Or are we talking about discipline? And that's the question that I want to end with today. These judgments are perhaps better described as divine disciplines, which establish justice. These judgments we read about are not vindictive judgments of retribution from God. And it, this really matters, because these acts of God on the stage of history are not retributions or the venting of a divine being just pouring out wrath. These are the acts of God with the purpose of transforming people. Revelation 5 verse 9 gives us a hint of this. Persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Revelation 7 verse 9 says, "'After this I looked, "'and there before me was a great multitude "'that no one could count, "'from every nation, tribe, people and language.'" standing before the throne and before the Lamb. And they were wearing white robes and they were holding palm branches in their hands. There is language here that says from every tribe, from every language, from every people. And the phrase here, a multitude that no one could count. When John writes this, the church can only be found in a few small pockets, These were Jesus followers scattered throughout the Roman Empire. But it's so important to understand this small little community gets this vision of this multitude that can't even be named of people that will actually come and surrender and worship and follow the Lamb. John knows through God's revelations that there will somehow and someday be myriads of people In other words, a mass amount of people are going to respond to God's purposes through the faithfulness of His people and His judgments as warnings to repent, to change, to leave the way of Babylon and to embrace the way of the Lamb. This period of three times seven judgments is actually not a time where all the Christians disappear and the world suffers. It's actually a time of worldwide mission. Because God's doing in these three cycles a discipline, not a judgment. God's intention is to call people, to jolt people, to challenge people to respond to the way of the Lamb and to reject the way of the dragon, the way of Babylon. So the challenge for us today is this. When we hear the letter of the Revelation, are we going to be faithful witnesses in Babylon, Because faithful witness in Babylon leads to transformation of hearts. And that's exactly what you see happen in the book of Revelation. Multitudes turn to the way of the Lamb. And this is incredible. So the challenge for us as we reflect on this is to remember this. Our role as faithful followers of the Lamb in our day and in our time and as God's church is to discern the the tentacles of Babylon and empire wherever we are. And if we see it in ourselves like the churches in the book of Revelation did, to repent and to get rid of it, to stay faithful to Christ and to actually witness wherever we go to the mercy, to the love, to the sacrificial love of Jesus Christ, to His grace, to be peacemakers, to be people of justice, I mentioned earlier the phrase, citizens of heaven. Philippians 3 verse 20 says this, that we are citizens of heaven. Do you know what that means? Not that we're waiting to get back to heaven, to go off to heaven where our citizenship lies, but to understand that as citizens of heaven here on earth, we are to play our role living under the reign and the rule of, of Jesus Christ, the leader, the saviour. So what that means is, we're not politically left. We're not politically right. We're not politically centre. It should actually probably be very confusing for people to understand who we are and what we are. Because our loyalties don't lie with a flag. Our loyalties do not lie With a political system, they lie with the Lamb of God. And that means every time a policy comes about, we don't say, well, that's our tribe, that's our policy, we're we're with it. We act as God's prophetic people on earth saying, hang on a second, does this reflect the way of the Lamb? Does this look like mercy and justice? And sometimes we're going to be right side of politics. Sometimes we're going to be centre. Sometimes we're going to be left People are going to say, that's inconsistent. I don't get it. And I get it's complicated because who do you vote for? How do you vote? How does it all work? But the challenge is for us to say, we're going to remain faithful to the Lamb. That's where our allegiance lies. So every single day, we'll be requested as His followers to affirm what is Lamb like. Wherever you see in culture, go, oh, that's Lamb like. That's good. Celebrate it. Embrace it, cheer it on. We don't have to be we don't have to be against everything in culture. But we also can as people of justice reject what is evil and destructive and keeps people oppressed. And we can play our part as being people who transform what is broken. Wherever you see hell, we bring the life of heaven. Do you know what's happening in the Middle East at the moment? We don't hear this in the main headlines. Faithful followers of the Lamb in Gaza. Faithful followers of the Lamb in Israel. Faithful followers of the Lamb in the Ukraine and in Russia, in Sudan and the nations of the world who are going into hell zones and they're bringing the life of heaven with mercy and justice and goodness and peace. This is our call. This is our mandate. And we get transformed in our hearts and minds when we make sure that we don't worship the symbols of the world, but we worship the lamb who was slain, the lamb who was slain. Would you stand?
0: Thanks for listening to the Good Life podcast today. Remember that you can stay up to date with the podcast by subscribing on whichever platform you're listening to right now. If you're interested in our ongoing conversation where we're delving deeper and asking questions about what we're talking about on Sundays, be sure to check out the pondering episodes in the same feed. Otherwise, we would love it if you could like, follow, and even give us a five-star review. It all helps in getting the good news out there. You can also head to our website, goodlife.org.au, or our YouTube for video content and resources. Until next time, peace.